Hi guys. Before we get to this episode of Needlessly Complicated Chaos, I just want to head this one up with a trigger warning. The following episode can contain some intense subjects, and they may not be comfortable for all audiences. Listener discretion advised. Check the trigger warnings in the show notes. Welcome to Needlessly Complicated Chaos. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Needlessly Complicated Chaos, the podcast that is exactly what it says on the tin, a little bit complicated, a lot of bit chaos. I am one of your hosts, Ace, my pronouns are he, him, and I am joined by... My name is Lynn, my pronouns are she, her. And I am Sky, my pronouns are she, they. Alrighty, gang. So, today's topic is one that is near and dear to all of our hearts. I see you guys have already got your gear going on, and if you guys want to see what we look like today, remember to go check out the video version of the podcast up on YouTube. So, today's topic is Harry Potter! The boy who lived and changed a generation. Uh, Changed many a generation, if you think about it. Many a generation, indeedy. So, we're all big old nerds. <laughs> so, <laughs> How would you have known? I know, right? So, for us, Harry Potter is a franchise that is extremely near and dear to our very core beings. And I think that that's a commonality we share with a lot of other people in our generation. Let's talk a little bit about our Hogwarts houses and why this cultural phenomena means a lot to each of us. All right. So as for those who are watching our video, you can see that I'm wearing my Hufflepuff shirt. I'm House Hufflepuff. Yes, we are excellent finders. (laughs) And How you guys uh, could find your merch, but I couldn't. Exactly. (laughs) See, we are silently but not shaming Ace for not having Slytherin merch. Okay, to be fair, if I would have planned ahead, I would have. (laughs) you would have planned ahead do i look like a hufflepuff always prepared and hardworking? no it's uh work smart not hard friends you could have worn a green shirt at least or like something green it's sweet you think i own other colors than black (laughs) green designs uh, that, this is a green design. It's my Cthulhu shirt. He's, he's green. It's blue. He is blue. You're blue. <laughs> <laughs> oh, quite the comeback. <laughs> anyway. How will we survive? Oh, Anyways, boy. so as mm. mentioned, I am House Hufflepuff. Sky, what about you? I'm a House Hufflepuff, like the postal child. True, true. And I, of course, am a Slytherin. Speaking of Sky being poster child Hufflepuff, basically, if you looked at the dictionary, Sky would be the Hufflepuff, whereas I am apparently the sneaky Hufflepuff. Oh, yeah. You're like Hufflepuff with the sass turned up. <laughs> That's that is. That's true. She's the opposite Hufflepuff that I am. I'm the poster child, like what Hufflepuff shows people. Oh, yeah. Lynn is like the backside of the moon that you never see on the Hufflepuff. <laughs> That's so true. That is so true. A Hufflepuff's dark side. Which, you know, isn't too dark. <laughs> no, it's not. But, you know, still. It's just... I will help you until I can't help you anymore. 
And she's like, I'm just going to help you. You have no choice. Exactly. <laughs> I, I choose violence by helping you, sir. Exactly. And, well, my Slytherin-ness is, I feel like very textbook Slytherin. But I think, and I want to say this on the record, I think Slytherins get a bad rap. Because yeah, they do. evil is not, like, a prerequisite. Because I'm a good boy. But I am textbook Slytherin. You get your determination, you have your ambition, cunning, like, pridefulness, all that shit. I have those traits, but I'm still not a fucking supervillain the way that so many people think Slytherins are. They're like, oh, you're a Slytherin, you're a bad guy. You're like, nah, dude, I'm just gonna work smart, not hard. That doesn't mean I'm a douchebag, you know? No, it doesn't automatically mean you're a douchebag. Same as the thing, like, thinking that Gryffindors are brave and thus automatically good. No, like... Being brave, yes, is generally viewed as a good trait, but at the same time, Gryffindors are reckless. Yeah, bravery without wisdom. Don't think about consequences. They just power through the things and just like I'm righteous and thus ha ha ha. And you know that's not necessarily a good thing. Exactly, and that actually is a really interesting commentary. I find that the houses bring out in people because. Mm. For how easy it is for us to throw around that, oh, I'm a Slytherin, I'm a Hufflepuff, you know, I'm a Ravenclaw, whatever. Gryffindors exist. But, like, (laughs) no, 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 no shade to Gryffindors. But, like, realistically, everyone identifies with these things. But I think it actually stumbled upon an unintentional cultural phenomenon where, yeah, I really do feel seen by these traits. And I think, I don't know if you guys ever heard this nerdiness, I'm sure you have, the whole whoever's whatever ninja turtle you pick is like tells a lot about you i think yes. i think you're... it's a, it's the same with harry potter or yeah um, like, like it's the it's the same thing when yeah, you, it's the same thing when you say oh i'm in this house you immediately know a metric shit ton about that person without them ever like, having to say a thing like anytime that people look at me they're like you're a hufflepuff i know what they're saying you're loyal, you're hardworking, you're always there to help people, you always have food, you're gonna help. <laughs> I love how Hufflepuff's... It's true. It's, it's just, true, though. If I had to be really general, right? You got your Gryffindors, who are like, I have main character syndrome. And then you have your Ravenclaws, who are like, I am the smart one. And then you have your Slytherins, who are like, actually, I'm the smart one, but let's do it from the back. And then you have your Hufflepuffs, who are like, I'm the mom friend. And... Just that alone, which is obviously a huge bastardization of the actual things, but it tells you so much about, I think, the core personality traits of people. Because I think Mm -hmm. we often don't think about how, even though as individuals we have so many lovely, specific traits that make each of us interesting and unique, there is definitely archetypes of people, and I think the houses kind of capture that really nicely, and in Mm. a really nuanced way. I would say yes and no, in the sense that it categorizes people immediately, which it's a thing that humans want to do at all times. We want to be categorized because we want to be able to be identified in a way. No, I get that. It makes it easier for us to be able to say, okay, because someone identifies a certain way, I can now already know certain things about them and thus gauge my level of comfort with them. So this goes into like further, more complicated topics as well. But just in general, if because it's easy to identify, oh, a Hufflepuff has these traits, a Slytherin has these traits, blah, blah, blah. You already know like, okay, so this is kind of how I'm going to interact with this person. It's not always bad. It's not always good, but it is something that you then immediately think, this is how I'm going to identify this person. 
you then further get to know them. And of course, you're, they're not only their house by no means, but it is the first thing you think of. Oh, it's like a lot of people believe in astrology, right? It's the same way of thinking about people that you think about astrology. You're like, oh, uh, he's a Virgo, she's an Aries, she's a Gemini. Like, you will have something in your mind that's like, oh, okay, those people are like that. It's the same thing, but... I love how you with... just called us all out subtly. <laughs> yes! I, I'm trying to be Feel fair red. to everyone. <laughs> Feel red. So, fun fact, the first time I told Ace that I was a Gemini, he was like, that explains so much about you! It does! It does! The duality like, of Lynn is, uh, I could write a book. <laughs> but, uh, but no, in terms of how, how much of a cultural impact Harry Potter has had, is in a way how we have decided to all identify with these four houses. How we have thus, in some ways, both categorized people, but also allowed people to not be stuck with the categories because we then learn about them i yeah. think you actually touched on something really accidentally super profound <laughs> <laughs> like like before when you <laughs> when you were just like oh i think people like to be categorized because it gives them like that sense of understanding and being known i think mm -hmm. that that is huge because this kind of links really well for us all specifically because we're all part of, like, I guess you would call minority groups of varying different degrees. Mm -hmm. Feeling seen and feeling like there's a community around defining attributes of who you are as a person, mm -hmm. feeling like there's a safe place or, like, a collection of said people, that's a fucking comforting feeling. Like, that, mm -hmm. that representation, that connectivity, that community without all the muss and fuss that community itself actually breeds just mm -hmm. that feeling that there's those people there that is like a weirdly powerful comfort it's one of the reasons why people identify so strongly with their fandoms mm. you also have to think of when it came out right it's the start of the internet it's that's true it was an awakening for us as a generation we started with memes and stuff but this was the first big thing that we all latched on together. Mm -hmm. That's true. And I think happening in the 90s, early 2000s, that gripped the millennial generation and gave us some way of being like, hey, before we have the right terms for certain personality traits, certain gender identities, certain things where we don't really have the words like, hey, we're having this emotion that makes us feel like we're part of this group, but this group doesn't have a name. We had our Hogwarts houses to be like, hey, I feel like I'm this kind of person. I feel like I'm that kind of person. Mm -hmm. And then you can still find like-minded people. Of course, it's not a surrogate for more important kinds of representation, like more depthy things like gender or um, sexuality and race and things like this. But it does give us a nice kind of blanket term where mm -hmm. all peoples can fit. And I think that that is comforting and necessary. And that kind of helped it be such a big cultural phenomenon like it ended up being. Yeah. Actually, out of curiosity, how did you guys get into Harry Potter? Because while we're talking that it's a huge cultural phenomenon, of course, the three of us are very into it. The way that people come about it is not always the same. Most people would be through the books, but it's not always the same way to get into it. That's true. That's true. That's a that that's a good question, Scott. Looks like you have a looks like you have a story. 
Why don't you go first? This is going to be so embarrassing. Why are you making me do this? Well, make is a strong word, but I mean, now that you mention it. <laughs> now that you say it that way, I am making it. <laughs> okay, so... Wow, that was a role reversal for the Slytherin and the Hufflepuff. <laughs> See, we're already playing against type. I am multitudes. Oh my god. Okay, so... I could not read the books for forever because Harry Potter as a character bore me to death. That's fair. So every time that we see his name, I would be like... <sighs> and, and in the first book, his name is there really often, unfortunately, so I never finished more than the first three chapters. Ooh, that's early. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and I tried multiple times for years. But my fans were writing a fan fiction about the Marauders and their time before. Oh, mm. yes, the Marauders. And they had to explain to me the book so I could understand what they were talking about, because they were talking about a lot. And that's from the third book, so if you dropped off at book one, you would have been well behind the, the Marauders point. And then I started to get into it, but by just what they were saying, so I had no knowledge at, at all until I saw the movies. And then I read the book. To be fair, I think the movies are a really great gateway. For me, as a poor kid growing up, I was like, I can't afford to get all these really expensive books. Yeah, like, no, I would always get that too. I'd always get them late, but you see the movies with your friends it's cheaper mm. to afford going to a movie than it is to buy a book half the time you know especially back then in the early naughties yeah. it was like what uh, 2002 or something when the first movie came out so Around movie nights were 2001, like one i think tuesday yeah. night at the movies was like five bucks you ain't getting a book yeah. for five books definitely not a new book you know oh, so so were affordable we're dating ourselves uh, here with this one. Like, in my time! <laughs> back in my day. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, like uh, for me, getting into the books, I had gotten the third book uh, randomly, and just the third book, for Christmas from a family friend. And I was just like, cool, I can't do anything with this. <laughs> this is like the third book in a series that I've never read. But my friends sure are interested in it. And one of my closest friends, Holly, was like, you should check these out. There's a movie coming out, and I think you'll like it. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll wait till the movie comes out. And then I know a lot of people tend to shame people. They're like, oh, you watch the movie instead of the book. But I don't think people understand how much more accessible that is as a medium to a lot of people. Some yeah. people find reading really difficult. I know, personally, like, I love literature, and I love reading, and I'm a big old book nerd as both of you know but reading for me like sitting down to read tickles my adhd in a way that it doesn't like and i can't do it so for me especially child me who was looking at these books in retrospect they're not that big but to a eight nine year old i'm like that's a big book i'm yeah. not gonna be able to read this book like there's no way and then when i watched the movies it gave me that extra special interest to care and then after that, I was like, okay, yeah, I can I can read these books. And then I did. I got the first two and I started reading them. And the thing that really helped me get into into the universe was I was reading them with my grandmother. So it was like a cool like bonding experience. And that made me really invested and really care. What about you, mm -hmm. Lynn? What got you into these books? I am also actually movie first person. So we're uh, all the movie gang. 
Yeah, yeah. So my sisters had gotten the first three books as a gift from, I think, a family friend as well. I don't remember the exact context. But they started reading it first, and they liked it. I, being much younger than them, was tried actually to read the first book, flipped through the first few pages, and then closed because I was young and, and was, it was not in my die-hard book phase yet. Then uh, what a family friend took me and the kid, who was part of the family, to go watch the movie. And then I was blown away. Because <laughs> it was... I would say that out of all the, the movies, the first one was the most loyal to the book in the sense that you really yeah. got into the universe. It really pulled you in. It just it just made you open your eyes like you were Harry, like you were discovering this brand new world with him, like with his point. But it just really pulled you in. And as like a tiny child being watching that, I was like, oh, and then I was I remembered, oh, yes, my sisters have the books. So I sneaked into their room, took one of the books and started reading and never stopped since. <laughs> but I mean, that's that's actually you touched on something great there to circle back on the movie adaptations, getting grief. And I get it for sure. I get it. I've watched movie adaptations. And I was like, did you even read the source material? I don't think so. Yeah. Yeah. But, but especially with like the Harry Potters, I think at least the first two are such loving recreations of the source material and it, that's that's much that's much less common but i think mm. even when a book adaptation is just kind of trying its best like not ones that blatantly are terrible to their source material but ones that are not necessarily perfect recreations mm -hmm. but are trying that gives you this wonderful sense of fantastical immersion that i feel like you can't necessarily get in books alone and with mm -hmm. harry potter the creation of movies like that really caused movie based on book series to start that whole young adult novel phenomenon your twilights your hunger games there were others i can't remember right now Percy Jackson. yeah all those divergent <laughs> <laughs> all those all of those started because harry potter opened that doorway and I think that in and of itself is a large reason why it has so much cultural staying power between the representation, catching a generation at their most formative years. I oh, mean, yes. we were all quite young when that started. And not to say we're particularly old now, but like, it's... But we, were... <laughs> we were essentially around Harry's age when yeah. like, this all started. Like, maybe a bit later than when the book started, but the movies definitely realistically that in and of itself you've gripped a generation in its formative years you've given them something that they can use to help identify themselves help connect with others find a community of like-minded individuals and it created such an idealistic world that felt like something you want to be a part of and when you partner that with exquisitely made movies people are going to be invested. It really grab people. That brings us around to a pretty interesting point. When you're creating something like that, a world that in-depth that has that many eyes on it, I think you start to become influential enough for what you say to really matter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Lynn's already ahead of me here, but I think that brings us to kind of an uncomfortable topic, but I feel like... A wonderful like elephant in the room. As queer content creators, as people of color... I feel like, just as nerdy kids, I feel like it would be tone deaf of us not to talk about how the author of the books, how having created such a beautiful world, has been the opposite of a beautiful influence on our real world. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, unfortunately. And that is that is a sad truth. So most people will probably already know by just, you know, being Harry Potter fans, but to let's give us a bit more context so that we're all on the same page. J.K. Rowling has been tweeting some less than nice things, to put it very lightly. Extremely. Uh, about the queer community, specifically the trans community, which has led a lot of well fans of Harry Potter to either disown her as the author or have very mixed feelings about the franchise to outright refusing the franchise. It varies from levels of you know how people feel about it. But ultimately, it then calls in question about whether a work is always necessarily a reflection of the author and whether or not the author will always have power over their work. I think that is actually really it because she said some absolutely unforgivable things about a lot of groups of people and she had no business doing that. But then when you think about the flip side of the coin that a lot of those people find solace in this universe becomes an internal storm. I know, as a queer creator, I feel really conflicted every time Harry Potter comes up because I love this franchise and I love this world and I'm proud to be a Slytherin, but I can't say I'm proud to be associated with anything that would or could be so transphobic. And when you take a more serious look and go over the source material. There's a lot of problematic material there in-universe. Terrible anti-Semitic allegories and terrible representation for people of color and just a bunch of lackadaisical kind of lazy approach to otherwise extremely serious topics. And that becomes a problem when you, you know, you reflect and you go, these are things that don't match the values of things I'm, you know, want to support. But this is something that's so integral to my life and to the lives of those around me. And it becomes, like you said, Lynn, then you have to discuss, you know, death of the author. And I don't think necessarily that the author themselves needs to be dead for that to be a thing. But there is exactly. there's a point where when you put something out in the world, you divorce a part of yourself from that thing. And while you definitely have to be accountable for your decisions, for your actions, for your content that you place in the world, I think... As the flip side of that coin, once it's out there, it belongs to those who have received it. It's no longer simply yours. So you can't go, well, I, as an author, am XYZ, insert here, terrible standpoint, and my work is only that, Mm -hmm. when the fans aren't that way. Something we briefly touched in in the pilot actually uh, reflects that really well the whole supernatural and bury your gaze tropes as well. Like the the creators were definitely very aware that their fan base was heavily queer. And then they finally give you that queer representation that was arguably more popular than the source material. And then they immediately was like, we're going to shame you by sending him to super hell. Like why, why did you do Why? Why? But like, that's, that's essentially it. JK created a world where it's not safe to be queer in universe. Mm hmm. Despite Which is really their sad being, because as you mentioned, a lot of the queer community identified with so many of the characters that were in the universe. I know that a lot of people probably identified with Harry just from being like literally shoved into a closet and yeah. then, then being able to come out of it, you know, to then explore like a 
better world, a world where people accept him for who he is, where he gets to try things and, you know. Like, it's like, such a, a great parallel of what it is to be a person in the LGBTQIA plus community. Mm -hmm. It's it's basically that feeling that you're being shoved there, you're being like forced to be in there. And when you finally let go, it's just like, no, your world is not going to be perfect, but it's going to be so much better than what you started with. Yeah. And just like the allegory of how that journey starts from that repressed place till the end where you found your truth, you've manifested your best mm -hmm. self to go and create something that's such an uplifting powerful positive message that is so heavily indated with queer quoted from just top to front from the putting him in a literal closet to you know yeah. him and his gay mentor like succumbing the evil yeah oh, to man. turn around and then say terribly hurtful things to that same community that's really messed up and i think it's one of those things where as fans and especially as queer creators ourselves like it's important that when we go forward and we interact with the medium and the media that we're always mindful of that and that we bring the fandom to a place where the source material couldn't be see that's exactly it you have to be able to look at a work critically do be able to take into considerations that yes the author or creator whoever did create it with certain intents certain things that they wanted to input in their work whether or not it always is the right thing is not always the case, such as in this case, Harry Potter. We can take a look at it without taking in consideration the intents that J.K. Rowling necessarily had, mm -hmm. because the work has evolved beyond that. Interpretations in literature are always an ongoing thing. It's the reason why English is a major in university, because we are able to take a look at works to interpret different ways of seeing them, to then take different social contexts, different time periods, see it in new lenses and new ways. And with more knowledge about how people can behave, they can affect how certain outcomes happen. To always consider that the work is only based on the author's law is not correct. Yeah, I think so. But we shouldn't necessarily discount either what the author did. Yeah. No. So I'm not saying what J.K. Rowling said is anywhere near good. It's not. Do we owe everything about Harry Potter to her? No, we don't. She is the one who created it, and we are glad for the world she created, mm -hmm. but it is not her creation anymore. Yeah. No, it's not. Like, as soon, like Ace said earlier, as soon as she put it out there... It's done. It's not yours anymore. It's all of ours. Like, it's not just mine. Yes, I wrote it, but it's also yours because you're reading it and you're reading it. And I cannot control what goes in your brain. Like, I don't see... There's that weird thing that I do when I read is that I imagine everyone, but I imagine them how I want them to be. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, headcanons are key. If it weren't for headcanons, I wouldn't even be able to interact with certain media because it's just like oh, yeah. nothing for you otherwise but like even when i i read something and i go see it that like a movie i'm shocked that it's not <laughs> what my head canon is oh my god yeah that is the most disorienting thing you go to the movies you're like oh my god this character is absolutely wow i was off the money like why is this actor this guy that that doesn't work that's not the face yep yep <laughs> 
Like, especially for me, for Harry Potter, I was sure that Hermione was black. Because she's definitely coded that way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she is. Specifically. And I think... The number of times that that was described. Yeah. I'm not an expert in the play The Cursed Child, but I think when that whole controversy came up about them casting a black Hermione, I was like, I think they're just being more loyal to the source material than J.K. herself was. I'll... I'll give her this. I'm pretty sure when it came out, she was just like, oh, yeah, I'm fine with that casting. And everyone was just like, okay, yeah, but then why didn't you have the balls to do it? Like, yeah. And it's one of those things that in media, often queer characters, characters of color, we don't get to be the guy or even on the fucking team. Mm-hmm. Hermione could have and should have been black and as a yes. strong female lead character well written fiercely independent extremely capable that was the representation that little black girls deserve to have and like I imagine Harry Potter to be at least half Asian I get that vibe I could see it I could see it you know that a lot of fanon headcasts will usually cast James as either East Indian or, or or part of the East Asian area, which is very large, I understand. Yeah. But definitely not like as a white person. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so that Harry would be half something else, which would actually be very interesting because supposedly the Potter family in universe is one of the oldest families. In, yeah. In one of the uh, pure blood thirteen. Exactly. So if that was the case, you have to think about the fact. And in uh, Britain, there was actually quite a wave of immigration for, since, like, forever, really. Yeah. And especially if you consider yeah. the colonization of uh, India during the time, if you wanted to go like, further back then, it would have been very possible for there to yep. be a prominent Indian family in Britain who had magical abilities. Yeah, absolutely. It worked very yeah, well. Sure. But you never know. It's another one of those things where, like, it ties back around to the author didn't have the whatever wherewithal if you will to be polite to go there but realistically she should have yes and that's where the fandom steps in and goes no by all forms of logic this even based in the world that you created still this because this is the Mm -hmm. thing that makes sense this is the thing that reflects the real world and i think that kind of ties back to the whole death of the author and the fact that once you put it out there even if your intent is as such, and that is received. It's not like people don't interact with the source material for exactly what it is and like it for exactly what it is, and it is what it is. Like, that is definitely a thing. I would argue that that's even common, but every single person that I've ever met who has a strong connection to the series has these little snippets of headcanon where you're like, this is more realistic. This is the world. And I think fan fiction is such a beautiful example. Oh, yes of of fandom really coming together to create something more complete and when you think about how powerful that is that it actually it actualized things into reality i'm very certain the only reason things like pottermore exists now is because everyone's like look we want to know the rest of the universe and if you don't give it to us we'll do it our goddamn selves mm-hmm. and then you won't like it because we it's, did it ourselves exactly it's probably jk rowling that was just tired of like those theories that she wanted to have control over i'm sure it was that yeah that's very possible for sure for sure and also the continuation of the series right because when your main series ends eventually you gotta 
Gotta keep Milk going. That's money. Crimes of Grindelwald. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, that's actually an interesting little side note because I loved the Fantastic Beasts like promotional mini work that they released mm-hmm. for Red Nose Day way back in the day there. Uh, mm-hmm. And you could buy them at like Chapters or Indigo or whatever. And I was so excited to get my tiny little red book and read about all the Fantastic Beasts. And I still have it. It lives on my bookshelf. Like, I love that thing. But even having read it and been so interested in the character of Newt's Commander and all that universe and that world building around him because there was like little snippets here and there throughout the novels and throughout the games which jk i'll give her this did the thing i would absolutely do if i ever made a written work which was have the ability to write in all the that background information for any source media and have the final mm-hmm. say to be like yeah this can be in there no it can't like props to jk and like say stephanie meyer because they also both did that and i think anybody who creates something like a world like that should do that and i think that there mm-hmm. were authors that made that mistake and regret it, like, say, uh, George R. R. Martin, for example, and, like, Tolkien's estate has said multiple times that people keep doing shit with Lord of the Rings that they're not cool with. So I think it is an important little admin-type thing to add there. But I do think that when you're world-crafting, it's important that if you're going to put in all these little extra details, you got to stay consistent. Because having played things like, this is going to age me again, but the Harry Potter Game Boy Color games. Oh uh, oh my god. Yeah, the first two uh, books for Chamber and for Philosopher's Stone, (laughs) those came out before the movie came out. So, And I I was admittedly late to the party. I played them after having seen the movie, after getting into the franchise, after reading the first three books. But the games themselves still did release before the movie, so they had that in-between art like that book art they had before the movie started to influence how people thought Mm -hmm. the characters looked Mm -hmm. and in them is like a bunch of extra lore like in the game boy color game they actually wrote out those famous riches and wizards cards they wrote out a bunch of them which is really cool and they did one for newt and when you look at the background we have on him as a character and then look at this new fantastic beast series there is very little overlap. To be fair, that was also like written before Crimes of Gritten Wall was going to be, you know, more fleshed out. So uh. Yeah, yeah. And I, I totally get that. Like from a consistency standpoint, that's something you do have to take into account if you're gonna make a whole new series around an obscure character, you better make sure that it works. It, it's the same thing as a current series that's happening. Let's say that you're writing a fan fiction of your favorite TV show hmm. like Supernatural, and then an episode come out, and nope, Supernatural's really catching our hands today. I mean, to be fair, I I never watched Supernatural, but I'm close enough to Tumblr to know like there's a huge community of close Supernatural fans. Well, it's just it's just accessible <laughs> it's to, just to explain <laughs> that situation, especially when you look at the fan fiction of Harry Potter. What is the ship that is the most popular? You think? I mean, I know the only ship I read. I don't. I, <laughs> I don't know who's the most popular. It's probably the most popular. It probably is though, because if I will fucking, I don't care. This is the hill I'll die on. <laughs> Harry, <laughs> one of many. I have a yard full, littered full of hills that are pointless things that I will absolutely die on. But um, Harry and Draco have more sexual chemistry more romantic chemistry than Harry and any goddamn girl that he looks at for more than 45 seconds. He has a better relationship with his best friend. Like, when I was rereading the second book, reading it, I was like, he has a crush on Ron. A little bit. 
Like, big time. I just like, the way he describes, like, and the reason I will die on this hill, just the way he describes the nervousness and the strong emotions that Jericho brings out in him, I'm like, yeah, yeah. there's something you want to fight and it ain't this his face. So, you know, you know... <laughs> But yeah, I'm like there's no heterosexual explanation and, for this. Like, I'm not as much of a Draco and Harry shipper as Scott and Ace are. That's because Draco is the love of my life. I can see where they're coming from. <laughs> <laughs> the love of my life. Yeah, no, no, not not realistically. I'm very certain that's love, Quinn. That's the love of my life. But I digress. That's that's from the series. You. That's not what we're talking about today. No. But no, and like I know. Yes, I'm a Slytherin. Yes, Draco's my favorite character. But one, I can see that he's a little bitch. That's the, he's like that on purpose. Two, <laughs> no, because it makes sense. Concede, it makes and then sense. Immediately defends. Yeah, no, no. Like it, I can see that he's a little bitch, but I think he's so much more nuanced and interesting because of it. Because everybody always wants to write him off as, oh, look at that whiny, entitled rich kid. But in reality, nobody's talking about, look at that kid who's had all this responsibility that he's not ready for thrust on him, all this generational trauma thrust on him all this terrifying fucking purpose that he had no choice of and no chance of escaping thrust upon him and watch him try his best. Even before that, even before that, he was subjugated by his family expectation of him. That's true. He's an only child. Like, you have to be this way. You have to be a Slytherin. You have to talk to people this way. Mm -hmm. I mean, can you imagine saying no to Daddy Malfoy? Like, that's not going to go over well. Lucius will fuck you up. Even if he's a rich kid, like, if he said no, he was probably cursed. It would have been bad for him. Serious and regulus about Black. Mm -hmm. Uh, Their mother used the Cruciatus curse on them when they disobeyed. Yeah. Like, that's just like. And, like,. Narcissa Malfoy is Bellatrix Lestrange's sister, mm-hmm. and they're both part of the Black family tree. Yeah. So you know, the, those values are you know they're prevalent. They're gonna they, that's the kind of generational trauma that leaks down. You know. Oh, if you want to have a good piece of media regarding uh, the Black Sisters, there is a little video series on TikTok that you can also find on YouTube about them and their life before that everything happened it was so good like i'm still watching season two but so so good you have to watch it i also think that re-brings us back around to what we were saying is like the fandom creations flesh out this world of interesting unique realistic characters that have so much more meat on their bones and so much more story to tell and so much more representation and interesting dynamics and jk just kind of glossed all over that because look at this potter boy go Mm -hmm. head empty main character (laughs) away and it's like that diminishes from the idea of what most people think of when they think of Harry Potter because most people are like, yes, I like that franchise, but they're not thinking of, oh, I liked it when Harry did this one specific thing, it was one specific book. They're thinking, no, Mm -hmm. that fan fiction, that unity in the community, that the way I feel about my house, the way the magic made, just just the magic in the world the ripped world through as a child. In there. You know, that possibility. That's what people care about. Not uh, not whether or not Harry got to kiss the girl he only looked at three times or not. God, that's like, such a bad take. This is, this is the sister of my friend that I kind of have a crush on. It's exactly the same because they're all the fucking same in that family. Yeah. That he just picked up... 
the girl in the pack. <laughs> Take the girl one. That was extravagantly bad writing. My like, good. I love Book Genie, Mike. Don't get me wrong. Book Genie is the bomb. Movie Genio. We're not going to talk about is, uh, it. No, no shade Book... to the actress, though, because yeah, I feel like she, she did a wonderful nailed job. it. But, you know, you can only be as good the as the writing. The direction was not done well for that character. No. It, it's just it was two different characters. It's like it uh, Book uh, Luna Lovegood. Oh, mm. Luna Lovegood. True. Two different characters. Two different characters. But oh, I, I do like uh, the way, going back to the adaptations thing, Luna Lovegood specifically, I not only do I love the portrayal of Luna in the movies, actress nailed it. Absolute perfection. But oh, yeah. I do Girl like... Girl crush hard. Oh yeah, God, she was gorgeous. But the whole Luna and Neville thing and their chemistry, I love how the movies fixed that rather than just ending up with random people putting them together felt so much more genuine. It felt like this really pure, loving connection that was built over time, and that felt better than what the books did. Yeah, but imagine a Luna and Ginny relationship in the book. My, the only thing stopping me from that is my pure hatred of Ginny. I'm so sorry. Yeah, but you... you, I'm trying to consider this, but... You hate the color orange, so why... I don't, oh, I'm not surprised. I don't hate the color orange, and I feel like as an Irishman, I gotta love gingers. It's just Ginny. I don't <laughs> like her. <laughs> I just Why? Don't. I don't know. She seems boring to me and weirdly aggressive and kind of creepily possessive of Harry, especially when they're not even a thing yet. And I guess it could be read as her being protective of him, like in a motherly no. sense, but that's no. even creepier to me. So No, no I... she's 12 years old. She has a crush. That's, that's how you love when you're 12 yeah. years old. I don't know, dude. I'm not a 12-year-old girl. I don't know how they work, but it's not Neither for me. Neither am I. <laughs> <laughs> I can't even Circling recover from that. Circling back to like, our headcanons mm. for this, another thing that I yeah. have that the fandom really has brought forth is the diversification of characters. We mentioned about like how uh, ethnicities were a thing, but mm -hmm. also in terms of queer relationships. Like mm -hmm. One of the things that I know, we, we mentioned Harry and Draco, but I know that one of the other big queer relationships that the fans have rallied around is between Sirius and Remus. Oh, yes. Because I, I very much am on that ship. Because there's no fucking way... That's not just secretly canon. I'm sorry, but this is another one of those times where it's like, you can't tell me that these two queer-coded characters you wrote, being Tonks and being Remus, didn't have same-sex relationships before this interaction. Like, you can't tell me those heavily chaotic bisexuals you wrote didn't have other <laughs> relationships before this. You're wrong and you're a liar if you try to tell me otherwise. She was like... What is a bisexual and write dreamers and dongs? Like, that sounds correct. Let's put them as straight. Exactly. And that's, that's the thing. Queer coding in media, because it's so, so common. They're like, let's write this obviously queer character, but I don't actually want to go there and give the queer people representation, so I'm just going to say they're straight, even though no heterosexual person behaves this way. Because it's a very clear allegory for queerness. And I think that that not only is problematic as hell, but like mm. that just speaks back to how the community just supersedes that author intent. Because you can't say that's as problematic as saying, oh, well, you're bisexual, but you're in a heterosexual relationship. Well, now you're straight. No, you're not. Well, no. 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 
That's not a thing. You're still bisexual. You just happen to prefer this one particular person. That's you just, just push a very particular button in Lynn. I was seeing it coming because she's just in the defensive Hufflepuff mode right now. Oh, yeah. I have had multiple bisexual friends. You two included. But, like, I have other friends who are bisexual and who will constantly face this kind of harassment. And I'm just like, no, that is not what bisexual means, you dumb, stupid people. <laughs> That was, like, the cutest but most aggressive way of putting that. You dumb, stupid heads. <laughs> like, so good. Well, the bisexual do not automatically have polyamorous relationships. They do not automatically become gay or straight if they happen to date a person that is... <clears throat> Anyways. Preach. As bisexuals, like myself and Sky. We see this all the time in media. You get that character, and you're like, hell yes, by representation. And then they're like, and you're just they're straight, waiting. though. And then you're like, <sighs> you're just waiting and waiting. And then they're like, they're straight. I'm like, no, they're not. I'm taking over. Yeah, you're like, no, no, no. I'll have it from here. You put the pen down. We've got this. <laughs> like... I very much love the ship of Remus and Sirius. Because mm -hmm. first of all, as part of the whole Marauders thing, they were definitely hooking up when they were in school. Oh, yeah. So we were talking about headcanons and, like, fanfiction and everything like that. But mm -hmm. what I like is there's multiple media that is influenced by that now. Mm -hmm. Like, before, when... <laughs> in our days, we just had, like, <laughs> fanfic.net. Ooh, archive of our own. Okay, we're all, and also YouTube, but like it's usually AMV videos, like oh people God. that you were shipping together and stuff like and that. And Wattpad, like yes. the old school days. Like Oof. the old one. But now we this have episode. so many more, like there's Instagram, there's Facebook, there's TikTok. Uh, TikTok. I am a big fan of TikToks for like canon stuff. Oh my God, so good. So good. TikTok the perfect way to lose your whole day and not realize that seven hours have passed. Yeah, exactly. One of my favorite series about Harry Potter is on TikTok. The fact that they're attacking more of the LGBTQIA or that there's more people of color, it's attacked there. At least we have the relief. Yeah, no? because like when they actually go and engage these issues, we can actually have that representation that we're thirsting for, that interaction that we're thirsting for, that realism that is mm -hmm. missing from the source material. And it's like Sky said, when you actually are willing to attack these issues head on rather than pretending, oh no, I don't see them, you get that rounded out nice feeling that makes this franchise so powerful. Like how you were talking about Harry Potter medias, I love theory videos and I love lore I think I mentioned this briefly in our pilot episode but like that's the whole reason why I love the Five Nights at Freddy's franchise because I love the idea I love the I love that connective tissue in media and understand that for a lot of people media is just either a way to pass the time or escapism or such and such but for me I like deep juicy connected overly complicated mess is like it says on the tin. So for me, <laughs> I I love theory videos and stuff, and I find I've gotten so much more value in the Harry Potter universe out of it. Like one of my all-time favorite fan theories that is some bullshit that JK said isn't true because, well, JK, but fuck you, it's death of the author time. So <laughs> like, it's the whole idea that when Draco goes to make the deal, because they make him do that, the whole way they threaten him, because... Voldemort says there's going to be consequences. 
that those consequences is the threat of the bite from Fenrir Greyback, the werewolf. Uh-huh. And when you look back at Draco's journey, especially in the movie version, you see him struggling, and everyone just assumes it's the Dark Mark, but then you find out it's not the Dark Mark, so what is it? It would make so much more sense if it was the werewolf bite, and that that's what he was dealing with. Because you see all the furtiveness, all this like struggle from him processing that he has to kill Dumbledore, which is already way too fucking much to ask of a child, but all right. And when you add that that was the punishment Lucius got, because it was a punishment for Lucius, it wasn't for Draco, and what what more accurate, pure-blood kind of delegated way, oh, well, I will hurt your heir, and that will teach you. And the mm-hmm. way that J.K. very not-so-subtly coded werewolfism as, like, a magical AIDS, which was fucked, like, that... <laughs> hitting that on her very queer-coded character, Remus, to... Then the next werewolf we see is a villain that lines up very much with her ideals. And then you add the whole giving that to Draco, our young in-universe queer-coded villain. And it kind of gets handed down that way. And you kind of see that gives so much more of a layered take on what's going on. Rather than the real world story is that, oh, Draco just got beaten up or whatever, got menaced. And then he did the thing. Because that's so unsatisfying as a plot point. And it doesn't yeah, even make sense in the universe she created. And obviously the Draco's a werewolf is a fan theory, and I didn't do a perfect explanation of it. There's so many better explanations. Like, if you really want a good fan theory video to check out on YouTube, check out the Super Carlin Brothers. Their Harry Potter stuff is amazing. They have a much more concise video on it. And they go really in-depth with it and make sense. Yeah, they know what they're talking about. Like, they got all their information correct and stuff. It's, it's that that I find is so powerful about this franchise, this this fandom overall, because you can get depthy like that, you can see all these real-world connections, and I think that if any work of art of any kind exists that justifies the death of the author, and the, the whole thing of once you put it out in the public, it belongs to the public, it's mm-hmm. this franchise, because you see, now that it's in the hands of us, the, the fans... It's so much more than it would have been if it was just JK writing this, you know? But that's exactly the thing. The fans are literally what made this universe so powerful. If it wasn't for the pure dedication of the fans to this work, we wouldn't have gotten anything further expanded. We wouldn't have gotten the movies or things like that. But that's due to the fans. Yeah. JK did make it happen because she was the one who got the money who then was able to like further expand it, yes. But where would a work be without people to appreciate it? And I think mm-hmm. that that's kind of the thing that all content creators have to remember. It's like, yes, you put this out in the world, and yes, art is out there to be experienced, but at the same time, like, once it's out there, the people are what make it great. It's not just, oh, I had this great idea, and then I put it out there, look how awesome I am. It's, oh no, I had this great thing, and I shared it with the world, and now it's something. Because the world, the community together around it, made it the thing that it is. And speaking of things that make us things that we are, I think this is a good closing out point for this episode. But next episode, we're going to talk about something that made us the way we are, and that's bilingualism. <laughs> so that was a weird way to put that, I'll admit. But it is true as Canadians and as speakers of both English and French, it is something that is very near and dear to our hearts. So that is all the chaos for today's episode. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week.
Bye-bye. Needlessly Complicated Chaos is a TBP Creates production. Your hosts have been Ace Rivas, Lynn Tao, and Sky Bernier Dion. Thank you for listening. <laughs>